Welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each week, Movie by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler classic film, The Best Years of Our Lives, One Minute of Screen Time per Episode. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm the creator of Boulderham Minute, as well as many other things, including the Locked On MLB podcast and, oh, a bunch of other things on your interwebs. Today, we're going over Minute 122. We've passed the two-hour mark, folks, and this minute begins with the most uncomfortable picture ever taken at a <laughs> dinner table and ends with Al telling Peggy that what she did took guts. Well, let me tell you, what I did today took no guts. It was a no-brainer. In fact, some might even call this booking cowardly. This person is someone I've known for a, wow, a very long time. In fact, he's known me during the best years of my life, Uh, was my great friend in high school where we had a front row seat to the rise of independent films in United States, and we seem to watch almost every single one of them together. He is up in Colorado right now, and he's my friend, brother, Scott Michael Pomerink. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Sully. Man, it is fantastic to be here. I am so excited to talk with you about this movie and just delighted by the invitation. Let me give everyone a little bit of background about me and Scott Michael. We went to high school together in the suburbs of San Francisco, and this was a pre-internet world where people who did dorky things like loving classic movies or reading comic books or digging baseball cards, whatever, it was harder to find your brethren. It was harder to find Mm -hmm. the people who did what you did. And when we found each other, you were a year ahead of me, and I don't want anyone to wonder which one of us is younger. Uh, You were the year ahead of me, and the two of us, we loved classic films and Woody Allen films and films that were playing at some of the art house theaters, and we also loved running around with our video cameras shooting stuff with a big, huge, bulky 1980s video equipment, and we were the film guys and we just just gravitated towards each other to watch tons of really good movies together we watched a lot of movies at your parents house and we watched a lot of movies in theaters and they were uh anything from uh, we saw indiana jones and the last crusade together we uh watched lots of yeah the independent films that just felt like, oh my gosh, people are reinventing cinema here right before our eyes. This was the late 80s, early 90s. I remember we saw Sex, Lies, and Videotape together. Yeah. And we were lucky that we were in a place in, in between Palo Alto and Menlo Park. There were a lot of sort of art house theaters. There still are a few art house theaters there, but they've a lot of them are closed and the Guild is closed. Park is closed, oh, the Varsity man. is closed, but the Aquarius is still there, and the Palo Alto Cine Arts is still there. So there's some hope. But when we were there, all those theaters were open, and they were all showing foreign films, art house films, and we. I, I tried to go to as many of them as possible. I, did we see? 
I know we saw Sex as a videotape together. Did we see uh, Sidma Paradiso together? Very possible. Very. That possible. sounds like a date film that you and I would. Uh, that's what. We'll, Absolutely. I, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was, I think it, we saw Do the Right Thing together. I know we saw Do the Right Thing. That was at the Guild Theater in yeah. in Menlo Park. Uh, but the other thing that you and I, we had a great love for seeing classic films. We went to see when they reissued Spartacus. Yes. Spartacus was restored in, I'm going to say, 91, 92 maybe. They released the restore. Or no, it must have been 90 because that was uh, the anniversary of it whatever year it was, they had a restored version of it. And we watched that at the park theater. Yeah. And it was incredible. It was, oh, incredible. that was amazing. I had never seen it before. I had, I, there was two films that I said, I'm not going to see it on television for the first time. I'm going to see it projected. Uh, one of them was Spartacus. And the other was Ernest goes to camp. I wanted to see that projected on the big screen, the way it was meant to be. Yeah. Did you see it in 35 or 70 millimeter? Ernest goes to camp or Spartacus. Ernest. Oh, you got to see it this seventy the way it was. Yeah. Written. No, the other one, the, the the other one that I refused to see on television, I waited to see projected, was Ben Hur. I, I hmm. would not. I would not see that on television. I, I I wanted to see, and I didn't see that until my junior year of college, and it was at a revival place in L.A. when I was visiting my brother, and I went to see it. It was the first time I ever saw it, but that's. You know, that's the way you're supposed to see it. That's the way you're supposed right. to see it. The other theater, and I intentionally, this is on my notes to bring this up, uh, but the, one of my favorite movie memories is with you, Brother Scott Michael. There is a theater called the Stanford Theater in Palo Alto where they only okay. show classic films. It's still there. It's still wonderful. And you and I were working at a toy store together. That's right. The Imaginarium in the shopping center near Stanford, which they called the Stanford Shopping Center. Right. They really put their back into the creative name for that place. Well, I think it is owned by the university. I think that property is owned by the university. I think everything in Palo Alto is owned by the university. <laughs> um, but the uh, when we were there, when we were working together there, that was the summer of 1991. Mm -hmm. That was your Boys in the Hood came out. I think you and I saw Boys in the Hood together. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, but that was also the year of that dreadful Kevin Costner Robin Hood film. Robin Hood, uh, well, uh, you got the name, so I'll let you say the name. I called it Robin Hood Prince of Cheese. That's, yeah. what, I, that's what I dubbed it. And that same, the, the very intelligently, the Stanford Theater in Palo Alto counter-programmed the awful Kevin Costner film, uh, Robin Hood film, with the Errol Flynn. They had an Errol Flynn week. That's right. And they had a beautiful print of the Adventures of Robin Hood, uh -huh. where that was a, a pre-Gone with the Wind color film. Yeah, yeah. And the colors in that film are like just striking and beautiful and almost otherworldly. Right. And the film itself was great. And the thing that I loved about it, and you you were the one who dragged me to that, because I was like, I don't want it. It's, it's, yeah, it's one of my all-time favorite films. Again, I had never seen it before. So the first time I saw it was in a packed theater where there were a bunch of families and kids, and the kids didn't care if it was an old movie. Right. And so they were laughing and clapping and cheering, 
And I was absolutely blown away by how well that movie held up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah. it was it was just wonderful. I saw it twice that week. I went to I went back to see it again. And they also had um, Captain Blood, mm-hmm. Seahawk, Seahawk, the Charge of the Light Brigade. There was one other one we went to because they were always a double feature. Right, um, right. But uh, they died with their boots on, maybe. Maybe, maybe. I did the one the the Seahawk and Captain Blood really were great. I thought Charge of the Light Brigade was technically great, but it didn't really. Uh, it didn't grab me the way the others did. But my right. God, we had so much fun that week, you and me. Yeah. And I think I brought my brother or maybe another friend, maybe Kimberly Bartlow came with us once or twice. Mm. I know I went to see uh, All About Eve with Kimberly at the uh, at there. Uh, but yeah, that was one of my favorite movie-going memories. Yeah. Was you and I avoiding Robin Hood, Prince of Cheese. <laughs> Which, to be fair, has a great soundtrack. The music score at Robin Hood, Prince of Cheese is terrific. I used the huh. suite for that in one of my In Memoriam vi- baseball videos. Oh, wow. uh, sometimes a lousy movie can have a great soundtrack. But, oh my God, that was, that's, you and I, you and I watched a ton of movies. Yeah. You know, speaking of In Memoriam and The Adventures of Robin Hood, Olivia de Havilland, may God rest her soul, uh, just died uh, a few weeks ago. And everybody talks about, you know, the, the all the obituaries lead with she was Melanie in Gone with the Wind. Yeah. And she's wonderful in Gone with the Wind. It's a beautiful performance. Um, the But she in that movie is demure and largely passive and... She's, you know, the second fiddle to Scarlett O'Hara, to Vivian Lee, And uh, I wish that more people talked about The Adventures of Robin Hood and all those other movies that she did with Errol Flynn, that, you know, many of which we yeah. saw that week. Um, th- because in those movies, she is every bit as feisty and exciting as Vivian Lee as Scarlett O'Hara. Um, that she is, you know, has this flirtatious banter, you know, where they always start the movie hating one another and then end the movie loving one another. And those are the movies that I love to remember Olivia de Havilland in. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And by the way, Adventures of Robin Hood, this is not Adventures of Robin Hood movie. I swear to God, we're going to get the best years of our lives. But <laughs> Brother Scott and I have, have watched a lot of classic films together. And that has one of my favorite uh, lines when Robin Hood comes into the big banquet hall with the deer on his shoulders, mm-hmm. and um, I think it's Olivia Hen- uh, de Havilland who says, uh, "You speak treason," and Robin Hood says, "Fluently." Yes, uh, that's 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 as that is just amazing. One of uh, the best uh, lines in cinema. Okay, brother Scott, watch me watch me bring it all together. Watch me watch me watch see if I can stick the landing. All right. Uh, you know, one of the other films I saw at the Varsity was The Thin Man. And man, that film really uh, holds up. And yes. by the way, the star of The Thin Man was Myrna Loy, who is also top billed in The Best Years of Our Lives. I made it back. I made beautiful, it back. Beautiful. Well done. I made it back. The East German judge says I stuck the landing. There I go. And we are back. So let's beautiful. talk. Oh, I'm top, sorry. Build, top build above. 
the three men whom we're ostensibly focusing on. Yeah. I mean, I love, by the way, I love it when billing is weird like that. Like, you know, uh, three examples of people who, at least in the opening credits, are third build would be Christopher Reeve and Superman. Um, right. Uh, Alec Guinness in The Bridge on the River Kwai. Hmm. And Martin Sheen in Apocalypse Now. Oh, and oh, wow. Melanie Griffith in Working Girl. Wow. Third build. Yeah. Third build. So, yeah, but it, billing is always about putting the biggest star on top. I mean, that's just, I mean, that's, it's just, it's just putting together a marquee. And obviously Myrna Loy was the, you know, the biggest name in the film. So, you know, it wasn't like, you know, people weren't, you know, falling over themselves saying, get me Virginia Mayo. You know, it was, uh, Myrna Loy was the, you know, was the box office draw there. So this, this minute we're starting with here has the tail end of the scene we had before yes. of the, the date from hell. Right. <laughs> where, the double where date from hell. The double date from hell where half of them are actually having a great time. Yeah. <laughs> half of them seem to be really loving it. And the other half is, uh, is pretty awful. Um, one thing that's there, there are two shots. The first two shots of this minute that we're going over here is uh, to me, the star of it, of both of the two shots is Greg Toland, the cinematographer. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And obviously it's been, we're at minute one twenty two, So obviously his praise has come up a lot, but you see a lot of the, the camera techniques that were experimented with in Citizen Kane being used in a more subtle way in this film, but no less effective. You see in this virtually everyone in the, the dinner party, including the people behind them, several tables behind them, they're all in focus and the camera shows up. The only thing that seems to be out of focus in this entire shot is the, the guy's camera that pops into the uh, pops into frame and it, it allows your eye to go where it wants to go, including that schmuck who's smoking a cigarette. Looks like he's smoking the flower on the <laughs> table. Um, and Dana Andrews, Dana, Dana Andrews awkwardly has his arm around, you know, around, um, God, why am I forgetting her name? You know, you know Teresa Wright. Teresa Wright, thank you. Oscar winner for Mrs. Miniver. I just stub I just I almost said Virginia Mayo, but no, very clearly not around Virginia Mayo. Yeah, and, we have two couples that are not actually the two couples. Uh Virginia Mayo has her arm around Teresa Wright's date and yeah. uh kind of forces the awkward uh arm around Dana Andrews and Teresa Wright. And also, he—I'm sure Teresa Wright wanted Dan Andrews' arm around her all night, but not under these circumstances, right? And, and she has that. Virginia Mayo has that line: "We want four copies, honey." She's not asking anybody, "Do you want copies of this picture?" But it, it seems like a pointed, like I want these two to be stuck looking at this picture of this awkwardness. It's funny. I've grown. I've. I, I saw this movie. Uh, I'll, I'll, the next minute, I'll ask you a little more about your background with the film. But I've seen this movie now beginning ten three times, and the, 
I watched it again um, last week before I was starting to record these episodes, mm-hmm. just to sort of you know refresh the whole flow of the film. And I know Virginia Mayo is the supposed villain of the film, at least in terms of her relationship with uh, with Dana Andrews. But I've grown to kind of like her a little bit in terms yeah. of she. You know, she didn't sign up for being with a super morose guy. She was the classic. And to me, this is a whole thematic thing with the film, which is you think there's going to be happily ever after, and it very rarely is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Dana Andrews meeting the sexy, you know, Virginia Mayo, and he goes off to war, and now I've come back, and I'm, and my darling's there. Well, yeah, but what happened after that? And she didn't sign up for him being broken from the war, but also unable to, you know, keep a job. And she right. wants to have this life. And, and right. she also was independent when he was off the war. She had a job. She had mm-hmm. a life. And that she gave that up. And it's funny that she has the line, I gave up the best years of our lives in the film. Yes, yes. So I've grown to if not completely like her, <laughs> that I understand her a lot more than the first few times I saw the film. Yeah, absolutely. She has some sympathetic moments where you're, uh, you, you can understand where she's coming from. Um, so I, I have this, I'm, I'm so glad that we got this minute um, that, that I got to be part of this particular minute because we get to talk uh, about two of my, 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 maybe my very two favorite things in this movie. One of which, the second of which is the relationship between Dana Andrews and Teresa Wright. The first of which is the facial expressions of Myrna Loy, um, which I'll come back to. But uh, uh, the the relationship here reminds me of two completely different genres, neither of which have anything to do with this movie. One is Indian movies, um, commonly called Bollywood movies, although I understand that that can be an offensive term. Um, But uh, Hindi movies, um, I have seen quite a few of, and they um, have the first half of the movie is the couple meets and has this... Uh, you know, wonderful, exciting romance and gets married. And then that's, that's when you're halfway through the movie, which in Hollywood movies, that's the, where the movie ends. Um, but in the second half of a Hindi movie, you then have to work out this relationship and find that it's not all exciting, passionate romance like it was when you first met. Um, and so I think there's a little bit of that um, in the, you know, we see the reality of uh, the relationships primarily between um, Dana Andrews and Virginia Mayo, but also even a little bit of that in um, uh, Frederick March and, and Myrna Loy he comes back and has to, you know, he's been married for 20 years and suddenly there are different dynamics to the relationship because he's different having come home from war. And Um, also we know in that same, that same sense that he 
doesn't know his children anymore because they right. were children when he left and now they're young adults. And the shot, which is way early in the film, when he first comes home and Frederick March looks down the hallway, he sees Myrna Loy, and there's that wonderful pause as if they're both saying, is this really happening? Yeah. And yeah. for almost any movie, that's the final scene. That's when it fades out. And right. this, is how, this is how we open it. And, I, and I'll, I'll tell you, along those lines, one of the reasons why I gained some sympathy for Virginia Mayo's character in the film is that she wants Dana Andrews to join her in this fun life. Yeah. She wants to bring, she wants to have him show up in the uniform and show him off and have fun. She, let's go out every night. Let's go out. And it's, and eventually she realized, oh, this is not the life I want to leave. I don't want to sit in a small apartment eating, you know, kielbasa while this guy can't figure out how to work, a, you know, can't work at a pharmacy without beating the crap out of someone. That, <laughs> you know, some spoiler alert, but, uh, I think that she, she wants to have a celebration. She wants to live an exciting life and wants to include him. Yeah, I'm not saying that she's without fault. I'm not saying that you know she should be sympathetic to the fact that you know he's dealing with some form of PTSD. Obviously, mm-hmm. but I also feel like. There's a part of her that it's very easy to paint her in the broad brush that Peggy does in the upcoming scene with her parents. That yes. she's this monster, right, right. And I, I mean, maybe this is a little bit of watching Wicked or Cobra Kai, where you want to sort of take a look at the other person's motivation. But I don't paint her in that big brush anymore, especially in the previous scene where the episode before you came on where they're having the scene where they're talking to each other in the, in the powder room through uh-huh. the mirrors, that there's a sense of perspective of this is who she is. And, and she's encouraging uh, Peggy to meet the right guy. And so it's, right. just, it's, uh, there's more to her character than, than I think some people have, you know, unfairly, I think uh, painted her in, the, in a bad light. Yeah, I agree. And and that brings me to the, the other genre that this uh, makes me think of, uh, and I, I won't say reminds me of, but um, it is film noir. And this movie is nothing like a film noir. Um, but film noir, which is taking off at the same time this movie comes out in the you know, mid-40s, um, Largely because all these German expressionist directors fled Germany and came to Hollywood, and that's what they created, kind of coming out of German expressionism. But in film noir, you have this trope where the hero is, who was always male, uh, is torn between two women, and there is a good woman and a bad woman. And the, uh, the good woman is wholesome and innocent and represents stability and the right path. And, and she can save him from his moral dilemmas. And the bad woman, who is not, you know, it's not like they're not usually villains. They're usually maybe attached to the villain. 
um, as a girlfriend or a gangster's mall. Um, but she's the femme fatale. She's going to lead him on the path to temptation and sin and maybe even mortal danger. Um, and the it, in this movie, it, you know, if this were a film noir, Teresa Wright would be the good woman and Virginia Mayo would be the femme fatale. And instead... Teresa Wright is actually representing temptation and sin and and uh, the all the things that in a film noir the femme fatale would represent. And Virginia Mayo is the you know fun loving, sexually available, um, perhaps promiscuous. We get hints of. Um, and and yet she represents in this movie stability and the marriage, the vows that he made. Right. Um, so it's really interesting to me that we have this kind of um, this flips a film noir trope on its head. And she is, uh, as she'll say later in the film, uh, a home wrecker. Yeah. Um, but she's the good girl. Right. She's the one we want him to end up with. She's the Mary Astor and the Maltese Falcon of this yeah. film, but as the sweet, possibly teenage daughter. I, I'm never quite clear how old she is, or she's like 20. Maybe. I think she says at one point that she's 20, but I'm, okay. I could be making that up. Jeez, that's still too young. But the, uh, yeah, and it's so funny. It does take the trope of the image of the beautiful woman whose picture you have on the fighter plane. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and she, and she was still there for him when she came home. When right. he came home, so well, yeah. she wasn't. Well, yeah, but he wasn't exactly. It, it took yeah. a bit of a goose chase to find her. She wasn't living in the hovel that his parents are living in under the tracks. But. Yeah, that's true. Okay, I, mean, I, I, I was painting in too good a brush. All right, well, let's move on to the to we go from the club back to the house. And Frederick March, who has just had way too many drinks, as uh, Myrtle Loy was keeping the tally on the napkin at the at, <laughs> at the at the hall, so he's he's battling whatever uh, whatever drunkenness he has. I love this shot. This is a yes. shot where there's so many. First of all, again, we mentioned Greg Tolan that you know Frederick March is in focus. Next minute, I want to bring up something else about Frederick March, but it would take us too much of a rabbit hole. Uh, Myrna Loy is basically in focus. And once again, we're working with mirrors, just like we did yes. in the powder room. Like, which one is the real thing? That in walks Teresa right through one door against a mirror. You see the back of Myrna Loy you know, reflected on that mirror. Well, there's another mirror there. And we can only assume that Frederick March, who's in the bathroom, is looking into yet another mirror as he is. Mm-hmm. And what I love... As he's about- basically, like, blending another drink, only it's Alka-Seltzer. But, it, you know, he's using the two glasses almost like a Boston shaker. Oh, by the way, there's something that I didn't notice until I, I had seen this film once in college. I saw it once maybe about 15 years ago when it was on TCM and I watched it beginning to end last week and I didn't notice it till about five minutes before you and I started recording because my eye always went to Myrna Loy and I didn't see the weird 
sort of visual joke of what happens with Frederick March was he puts he puts the the antacid in the thing mixes it up like he's like he's making a martini and uh-huh. then picks the wrong glass to drink out. He, pick, he right. tries to drink out of the empty glass, looks at it, and I love a shot like this where your eye, it allows your eye to go wherever it naturally goes to, and it was four viewings before I got the joke. Even yeah. saw it, it was a joke. I uh, I didn't notice it until this, you know, this week, this this viewing, but yeah, it's uh, I, I don't think I'd noticed it on previous viewings either. And it's a very subtle joke. But it's also a moment of, yeah, he's still a little sloshed. He doesn't even know, what, what am I drinking? Like, what, there was that moment of, wait, oh, there's nothing in that one. And then, oh, drank that one. And in comes in Teresa Wright completely, you know, it's heartbroken. And then they cut. They, this, is when they, they, this whole scene has been one shot until she sits down on the, on the bed surrounded by the two parents. Yes. And we stay in one shot and there's a very deliberate cut in the next minute, but uh, and she sits down and they know the score. I love these two as parents. I mean, they're just, they're so Absolutely. supportive. They're great. They're, they're model parents. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and w- I mentioned Myrna Loy's facial expressions. She, um, you know, if anybody who's seen the Thin Man movies knows what a comic genius she is mm-hmm. and uh, that she can have really silly facial expressions. You know, some of the faces that she makes at William Powell in those movies are uh, just, like where she just scrunches up her face or sticks out her tongue or things like that. Um, and in this movie, she gets one or two of those early on. Um kind of comic uh reactions although even in those i'm thinking of uh you know when she um tells uh uh, frederick march that um uh peggy knows more than you know she says she's worked in a hospital she knows more than we do and and there's kind of a, a lovely funny yet poignant look um but here when uh, Teresa Wright comes in to talk about the bad date, uh, she gives kind of a, um, it's a, it's a subtle look. It's not a, a big look, but to me, it just says like, okay, I do not approve of this, but I'm going to hear whatever she has to say and we'll talk it out and get through it. It's, it's a beautiful thing to me that it just, the look on her face is, um, it just I'm I'm I've got disapproval there, but I'm pushing it back a bit because the important thing is to love my daughter and to hear what she's going through. Also, there is that element of me pointing out what's wrong with what she's doing is going to make it worse. Yes, and Frederick March, and maybe she also knows that we're going to play good cop, bad cop here. <laughs> Frederick, with the next minute, you'll see if Frederick March is willing to throw a Molotov cocktail or two. Uh, yeah. Um, I just want to just address something you were saying that yes, Myrna Loy is a, is a wonderful uh, comedic actress. And I think a lot of times you see when a lot of times when people make the transition from comedy to drama, uh, that they can use some of those comic skills in a way that if they bring it back and use it more subtly, it could be something that is 
more of it could be you could find the reality of that humor that they did and still inject it like when she was as i mentioned doing the uh, the tally of his drinks or mm-hmm. the first night when they came back and they they were bar hopping um she had a, a bunch of great looks and some quick lines that were really funny but yes. not over the top it's not suddenly she's gone into this funny character land and yeah, yeah. and to me i i had mentioned this in bull durham minute and i and i'm i'm bringing it up here i think the best times when you have someone who could make that transition you realize you're they're not playing the last and they're not playing the tragedy they're playing the truth and allowing that to be if it's funny then it'll be funny if it's if it's tragic it'll be tragic and and the the example i always go back to is when they were making butch cassidy and the first day of shooting paul newman was kind of hamming some stuff up some of the, the they were shooting the the holding up the train with with woodcock not wanting to open the door and uh-huh. paul newman was kind of playing it broad because he thought it was a funny scene and it was george roy hill who said stop doing whatever you're doing play it like you're doing cool hand luke you know just play it real oh, and, wow. then, and he said and and newman said yeah that's right i'm playing i'm trying to be a clown and just play the reality and let the humor take care of itself and that's why films like that films like one flew of the cuckoo's nest is are able to straddle you know go back and forth very quickly from comedy to to drama and this film can have very funny moments and very humorous moments and for, i think frederick march has some really funny moments in the film but yeah. then to something really heartbreaking or gut-wrenching yeah yeah that's a great way of putting it yeah uh, that's i'm uh, very smart you, you are you are yeah. I have a master's degree, you know. <laughs> um, and it's um, uh, there. There are some really funny moments there. I was surprised to remember as I was watching it again this week what uh, there are laugh out loud moments in mm-hmm. in this. It's, it's just some big laughs, and and yet you know, incredible pathos. But because that's one of the things that makes a film like this survive it's about life life even think about we're recording this in and it's still 2020 i don't know when this is dropping this has been an incredibly hard year for everybody on the planet earth Mm -hmm. and there still have been moments this year of humor and laughter and warmth and love and there have been times of tragedy there have been times of you know, family hardship, they're all, it, it, that's a combination. And so you can't have everything, when everything is super serious, it turns into a grim soap opera. And if everything is goofy, it turns into a sitcom that doesn't feel believable. And so right. a, a film like this, it's funny. This is a three-hour, two-VHS tape movie mm-hmm. uh, from the director of several epics, including Ben Hurs, who went on to direct and yet it is, in essence, a film about three men in a small town. And so yeah. it's, it is, it's not epic in scope. And yet right. it works. It works on so many levels because you believe everybody and it, it feels real. And I'll tell you another reason why it works. It's nothing to do with this minute, but because Harold Russell grew up in the next town over from me that I grew up in in Massachusetts and he has a very thick 
New England accent, and I hear that, I just want to grab a chowder and sit back and watch <laughs> the socks. And sit, you know, put Jimmy's on my ice cream and get, we're going to do candle pin bowling afterwards. It's just all that is as Massachusetts of voice as you can get. And wow. It's, it's real. Yeah. So, all right, well, look at that's, uh, I think that's enough for this for a minute 122. Um, Brother Scott Michael, uh, do you exist anywhere online? Do you create anything that people can see? Where, where can, if anyone wants to follow who you are, where, how would they go about doing that? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter uh, at Brother Scott Michael, B R Scott Michael, S C O T T P M I C H A E L. Uh, and I'm also on WordPress at brscottmichael.wordpress.com. And we're going to put links to that at uh, all the places where you can find us on uh, online. For everyone else, you can find the Best Minute Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on Google Play or the main site, which is thebestminutes.com. And if you want to follow us on social media, go to Butch's Place, The Best Years of Our Lives Listeners Cafe on Facebook and on Twitter at The Best Minutes. I am your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. This has been Minute 122 of The Best Years of Our Lives. Thank you, Brother Scott Michael. Hey, uh, if you've got enough time, we'll book you a hotel. Maybe you could do tomorrow's show. That sounds great. I'm in. All right, did we just this is totally impromptu, spontaneous booking right now. So stay tuned for the next episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Hey Joe, you better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor.